Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you to run for your group, and we do it free of charge. The Fallout role-playing game is our system of choice this season, so if you're still in need of a copy of the rules, head over to your local game or bookshop, or if you don't have one of those convenient for you, check out the Modifius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Okay, before we get into anything else this week, I wanted to offer an apology for the shortness of last week's episode. I know I mentioned the reasons why, but it still bothered me that I let that show be as short as it was. While I realize we haven't been hitting the 30-minute mark much recently, to go that short was almost embarrassing. So I wanted to let you know that I'm making it my mission to make sure that regardless of my health, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen again. Okay, so we need to get building. Let's recap last week's build so that we can get to that. Last week, we picked up with our group dealing with Dawes, whom they'd gotten basically nothing out of when they questioned him. If they'd spoken with Victor before that meeting, they knew Victor wanted to speak with Dawes, so they delivered him to the third base saloon. If they hadn't met with Victor prior, then they did whatever they felt they needed to do. Once that was finished, the group headed back to their base for some shut-eye and found a note tacked to their door when they got up. It was written in the same script as the notes that led them to the Brotherhood of Steel in the first place, and it noted that it wasn't supposed to be seen by Brotherhood members. The note suggested that the Brotherhood wasn't there for the reasons they claimed to be, and suggested the group check out the Timmins Toy Factory in North St. Louis if they wanted proof. The group headed that way and had encounters with a group of raiders and a Deathclaw before entering the factory, where they were surprised to find a Brotherhood of Steel vertebird parked. It had damage that matched up with the story that they'd been told by Paladin Zane, but they also realized it was still airworthy, so parts of that story just didn't match up. In searching the rest of the factory, they found a hollow tape, and while most of it was corrupted, they got a snippet of conversation that implied that the Brotherhood of Steel group was to get close to our group so they could get to Victor, then kidnap him in order to facilitate their plans. When the group attempted to tap into the Vertebrates' onboard computer to download any information, it tripped security measures that enabled the self-destruct, and they had to get out of the factory within 30 seconds, which they managed to do. They returned to Diamond Pass, only to see plumes of smoke rising up from it. They quickly got the word that the third base saloon had been destroyed by the four Brotherhood of Steel members that had been working with the group, and Bruno informed them that they'd taken Victor, said something about having used the group for what they needed them for, then escaped. So, that is where we'll be picking up the build this week. Before we do that, there's a little bit of housekeeping we still need to do, and I'm putting it here because it involves part of the story we wrote last week. Last week's build hinged on both keeping the Brotherhood of Steel away from the group for a while and the Brotherhood having previously met Victor. So, we have a couple of things we need to work out if neither of those things happened. I mean, it's entirely possible your group was allowing the Brotherhood members to stay at their base of operations, which would have made getting away from them pretty difficult. Well, I mean, maybe not that difficult, but since the group had been working pretty closely with the Brotherhood for the past couple of scenarios, suddenly taking off to do something might have drawn suspicion. 
So this is where the group would need to get creative in their excuses. I think this is a good spot to have one of your group members make a charisma plus speech roll with a difficulty of five to convince the Brotherhood that they're telling the truth. As always with roles like this, you can allow one member of the group to assist, and I think it goes without saying that it should be the member with the next best charisma and speech since they only get one die. Now, if they pull that off, they can get away from the Brotherhood to be alone for a little bit without an issue. If they fail, let them believe they've pulled it off. But you and I both know that a member of the Brotherhood of Steel will be tailing them. And that's going to be one of our scribes, since Zane would believe she'd be too obvious and the scribes have points in sneak. Pick one and have them make the agility plus sneak rolls in opposition to the perception plus luck check will allow the group to make. And this is another case where the group gets one roll with one person assisting. I mean, to me, that's only fair. If the group wins the test, they can act in whatever way they feel is best, and you're going to have to work it out on the fly. If the Brotherhood member wins, it really leads credence to what happened as we worked further through the build. That leads us to the other issue in all of this, and that's Victor. Again, we sort of assumed that Zane had been with the group for one of their meetings with Victor. If that wasn't the case, it really doesn't change much, but it does seem to throw a bit of confusion in around the holotape. Doesn't change most of their reactions about the firebombing and kidnapping, so we don't have to rebuild much here. And as always, if your group is using someone other than Victor as their primary contact, substitute them for Victor whenever indicated. Okay, so let's get into this week's build since we sorted out what we needed to for last week. We'll pick right up where we left off last week, and that's with the group looking at the fire brigade dealing with the last of the flames and the third base saloon smoldering. The bar isn't completely burned to the ground, though I think I might have indicated last week that it was. There's still some of the structure left, but the place is going to be a total loss. Bruno's not happy, and he's switching from calling out orders to the fire brigade and voicing his concerns about Victor to the group. It's a safe bet the group's going to do several things in this moment, so let's list them out. They might want to help the fire brigade with finishing up the firefighting, especially since several of them are starting to fall out from the strain of having to put out that much fire. We're not making anybody roll for it. They just need to describe what they're doing. Shouldn't take longer than about 15 minutes or so to finish up since most of the wood has already burned, leaving the concrete decking. They will manage to save the structures on the levels above the field, so there's a plus there, especially since there are a lot of people living up there. This also allows for anyone wanting to provide medical attention to do so, since members of the fire brigade will have some burns and smoke inhalation issues. Fortunately, the bar was cleared out before it was lit up, so there weren't any humans in there, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. Now, they're certainly going to want to search the ruins. I mean, maybe they're looking for clues. Maybe they're looking for Victor's valuables. Regardless of their reason, Bruno is going to stop them from doing it. And what he's going to say is, we've got that covered. Mr. Victor programmed all of us with contingency programs for something like this. And securing all of his property that might be left is top priority. And they can roll whatever they want to try to convince him otherwise. But he's not going to budge off of that. So let's move on. What's definitely going to happen at some point is that the group is going to want more info from Bruno. Once he's given word to the rest of the Mr. Handy Robots in Victor's employ, he'll lead the group away from the saloon to do a debriefing. And I think we're just going to cover the story from the top. About an hour prior, four individuals wearing Brotherhood of Steel uniforms, with descriptions matching the four members the group had been working with, 
entered the saloon and ordered everyone out. They pulled their weapons and made it clear that they didn't want to hurt anybody, but they would if people didn't run. Once they'd done that, the two men went back to Victor's office and came out with him restrained. They tossed a number of Molotov cocktails around the saloon, setting it on fire as they left. On the way out, the one who appeared to be their leader, group would know that's Zane, told Bruno that the Brotherhood of Steel had used everyone for what they needed them for, and now they weren't needed anymore. Then the big guy slung Victor over his shoulder, and they ran out of the pass. Bruno will find it odd that he didn't hear any sounds of commotion from outside the gates, so he's curious as to just how they managed to get Victor past the guards without issue. That's it. That's all he's got to tell him. So now there's work to be done. Obviously, if the Brotherhood wasn't staying with the group, they'll want to check out the lodgings that they'd been using. We'll work from the assumption that they were staying in that shack on the other side of the pass that Victor was allowing them to use, so just adjust what we're writing here to fit any other locations they were using except for the group's base, which we'll cover after this. When they enter the shack, they realize immediately that things aren't adding up. Zane's power armor is missing, as is the communication gear. They can check with Bruno if they wish, but he definitely didn't see anybody in power armor, and he can't say for sure if he saw anything large enough to be the communication gear being carried by anyone. Checking the rest of the building, they don't find anything out of the ordinary. The team had kept things neat and tidy, as you would expect from a military group. They even made the beds they'd been using before they left. So that's going to mean there aren't any clues here. So, let's check out what happened if the Brotherhood was staying with the group. Honestly, it's going to be pretty much the same as it was in the shack. Zane's power armor is gone. The communications gear is gone. They'll also note that everybody's beds are caught or whatever were made and any messes that the group had left were cleaned up. It's like they performed a hotel housekeeping service before they bolted. And again, if they check with Bruno, he's going to give them the same response. Now, if by chance the communication gear was set up somewhere other than where the Brotherhood was staying... They can head there and they're still not going to find it as with any other location they checked. So the group has no idea why the Brotherhood of Steel took Victor and lit up his bar, no idea where they went, and a whole lot of facts that don't seem to tie together into a neat package. This means it's time to hit up any and all information sources that they've got. This is one of those spots where I'm going to leave it to you to determine who they might see, but I will say this. Nobody knows anything. And if they're using some of their less reliable sources, give them some information that's so far out there, they're going to realize it's a complete waste of their time. Now, they're going to probably think at some point to try to hit up Mackenzie Cook, but she's conspicuous by her absence. I mean, she's nowhere to be found. Her office is locked tighter than the drum. And even if they unlock it, she ain't in there. So they're going to have to just leave a note and hope she finds them. So have the group spend a couple of hours beating the pavement looking for leads, but everything's going to come up dry. So after those couple of hours, the group's going to get another note from their mysterious source. You can decide how they get it. Tack to the door of their base, get it from Bruno, and he's going to have gotten it from a courier, or whatever or whoever you think fits best with the theme we've got going. It's the same script they've seen on the previous notes, though this time the envelope has each of the group members' names on it. The note inside reads as follows. I told you things were what they seem to be, and it's even more complex than I originally thought. I had no idea Victor was part of their plan or I wouldn't have sent you to that toy factory. 
I can't change that, but I can give you the second piece of this puzzle, and it might just help you find your boss. The old Fox Theater has very recently received a serious facelift, and men wearing black tactical uniforms like the ones Garson Tactical used to wear have been observed handling guard duty. I also personally saw a set of Brotherhood of Steel power armor taken in there around the same time at the firebombing of your boss's bar. Since none of us believes in coincidence, I'd say this is connected to everything else we've seen thus far. Again, as is usual with these notes, there's no signature. Now, let's hit the pause button for a moment because I'm sure your group is starting to express frustration with these notes directing them in places and are probably a combination of frustrated because they feel like they're being led around by the nose and they're getting suspicious of whoever's writing them, wondering if this is all some sort of setup. Look, I don't have an easy answer for that. I mean, we are leading them by the nose right now. I can't deny it. But we're at a point in the story where we need things to go a particular way to get us where we need to be next. So options aren't really something we can give out. It's going to be this way for just a little bit longer. Then we'll be going back to giving the group some options to go to follow their goals. Insofar as the suspicions, I think we can just let them run wild with that right now. So as long as they ultimately do what we need them to do, I feel like suspicion can be healthy in this case. Just keeps them from trusting everybody. And let's be honest, it happens to facilitate decent role-playing from time to time, so we've got that added bonus. All right, let's unpause and get back to the build. With their usual source of information for these sorts of things, MIA, they're going to need to do some good old-fashioned legwork. That means scoping out the Fox Theater and seeing what's what. Located very close to the old St. Louis University campus, which we outlined much earlier in our build, the Fox Theater has a rich history. When it was originally built, it held vaudeville shows and other forms of live entertainment. Once movies became a thing, it was a single-screen movie theater, which was the standard at the time. Now, in the real world, it had some downtimes in the 1960s and early 1970s before getting a renovation, and is now once again a venue for live entertainment, including concerts and some musicals and plays. In the Fallout world, it's always been a movie theater, and it was always one of the nicest theaters around. It did manage to avoid a lot of damage in the bombings, though the front of the theater took a decent amount, which would have necessitated some rebuilding in order to even be entered, let alone used as some sort of office or whatever. It's also located right about the center of the block it's on, and the buildings to either side of it remain relatively intact, though their fronts were also pretty badly damaged, and it's obvious they're not being used for anything since nobody's cleaned them up. The rooftops would be good spots to put men or turrets on, however. There used to be buildings across the street, but those were either damaged in the bombings or by various groups trying to take control of the area afterwards. Enormous piles of rubble are all that are left, and they'd also be good spots to hide snipers or other guard types behind. So the group needs to be careful in their approach and how they're going to scope things out. This is a good place to note that my group has been taking to doing both a daytime and a nighttime survey of their targets, so we'll build them both out, so we've got some options. The daytime survey will be the trickiest for the obvious reason, so the group will need to be rather stealthy on their approach to the block. I'd suggest agility plus sneak checks, difficulty two for the group, with Mr. Handy, Mr. Gutsy Robots having a difficulty three. Now, this is one of those things where you don't tell the players what the difficulty is because we want to give them the impression they've succeeded, even if they haven't, 
because I found that players will alter their intentions if they know up front they've failed on one of these. And let's face it, in real life, you wouldn't know you failed to sneak up on somebody until they want you to know. Anyway, they'll easily be able to determine that the piles of rubble across the street from the theater don't have anyone or anything behind them, so that wouldn't be a bad spot to post up in to continue surveying the landscape. If anybody failed their sneak check, they'll be fired upon before they can get to the piles of rubble, and we'll get to those folks that'll be shooting at them are and their stats in a few moments. We should probably make the group roll to see all of this stuff, but during the day, if they spend enough time behind the piles looking around, they should be able to see everything. Well, with a couple of exceptions, but we'll get to those. There's a half a dozen men in black tactical gear set up at the front of the theater. We'll use the Brotherhood of Steel Knight stats that we used for Garson Tactical before, and those are on page 383. For the record, if the group gets fired upon, these are the guys doing it, but we'll detail this a bit better later on. They'll also notice five machine gun turrets on the top of the wall facing the street. The one in the middle is an MK5, and the stats for that are on page 378, while the two on either side are MK1s, and those stats are on page 377. There are also a dozen or so iBots roaming around, and while they'll get close to the rubble the group is probably hiding behind, they don't ever go behind it, so long as the group isn't making a ton of noise, and that means they're going to be good. Stats for iBots are on page 359 in case they come into play. There are also four wall-mounted laser turrets on the front of the building, and those stats are on page 381. Now, there are alleyways on either side of the theater, but it's pretty obvious that trying to get to those from this side during the day is pretty much impossible. So if the group wants to head to the back, they'll need to back away, circle around, and come at it from another angle. We'll be nice and let them do that with the same sneak rolls as before, and the only way they'll have issues is if somebody has a complication. Issues means combat, and like I said, we'll get the stats all out there momentarily. Once they get around to the back, they can find a couple of buildings to hide behind or use for cover, and if you want to make them roll for success, use the same rolls we did before. Ultimately, the setup back here will be exactly the same as on the front. That means getting up the alleyways, at least during the day, will be nearly impossible. But my group likes to try the impossible, especially since they've got Mr. Gutsies in the party, and they have the ability to basically fly. This group has thought of those things, and there are five more turrets on either side of the roof facing the other buildings, as well as something else the group couldn't have seen from the street. Six more men in black tactical gear set up in sniper positions on each of the three roofs, three facing the front and three facing the back. So, there is a lot of firepower guarding this building. So that's daytime recon. What's nighttime look like? Well, we'll start with eliminating the sneak checks, since they can get to those rubble piles pretty easily. One difference we will note is they've got fire barrels and outdoor searchlights going, but they don't reach to the other side of the street. The group can count the same number of men and iBots as they could during the day, but it'll take Perception plus Luck difficulty 3 to pick out all the turrets through the various lights. Same on the back, and if they try the elevation trick, the snipers are still in place. So... They use the exact same number of guards at night as they do during the day. Now, I did say I'd mention what happens if somebody gets caught on one of those sneak checks. It's simple. The six on the door chase after the group along with half the iBots, and they'll chase them for several blocks before turning around and heading back to the theater. 
And if the group decides to get cute and try to circle back around, they'll see that the six that chased after them were replaced by six more. So while they can lower the number of iBots, the number of humans handling the guard will not change. That means the group needs to decide how they want to handle this. And even though I hate combat slogs, we're pretty much on the verge of one. However, the group will be getting some help for this, but its help will detail next week since we need to bring the build to a close for this week's show. And that's because my group ran again last week, so we need to do a recap. Before we can cover what we just ran, we need to summarize what we did in the game previous. When we picked up that session, the group had just nuked the synth factory in Brentwood, and they made their way back to Diamond Pass to report to Victor what they'd done. He took advantage of the meeting time to send them to meet with Chip, who supposedly had information linking synths and Garson Tactical together, so of course that piqued the group's interest. They met with Chip, got the church location, and also got the location of the other synth factory in town. The group decided they needed to rest, but since Jim's Mr. Gutsy doesn't require a rest, he went out and scouted both locations during the evening, and he determined that the church seemed a bit odd, so he suggested the factory be their target. However, before they could act, Victor called them back to his office to announce he'd located the main facility for Garson Tactical, and he provided them with toys to take it down, provided they nuked the home of Tucker Malloy while they were at it. So, the group decided to take out Garson first, then hit the other factory and Malloy's house. They ran into Mackenzie Cook during all of this, and she provided them with the news that Longsworth was supposedly meeting somebody in Clayton the following night to do a deal, and the group asked if she would check out the church for them while they handled other business. She agreed, and they agreed to meet up later to compare notes. The group made the trip to Jefferson Barracks, and they nuked Garson Tactical basically into oblivion. From there, they did as they said they would, and pulled a simultaneous nuking of the synth factory and Malloy's house. It was only after they did all of that that it occurred to them to check on Cook, and she noted that she got roughed up in the church, but that she found the body of somebody the group identified as Chip, as well as the holotape he recorded for Victor. They returned that tape to Victor and discussed the Longsworth deal, and we wrapped the session after the group decided they would be making that meeting. Now, I need to note up front that we were minus Aniston this week, and we're still short Tyler and Max, and I'm probably going to stop noting we don't have them, and I'll just note when we do get them back again. Anyway, the group decided to make the meeting with Longsworth, as he's still on their list of people they'd like to see slide under a gas truck and choke to death on his own blood. So they got to the garage well before the meeting time and scoped out the garage for the best spots to hide and wait. Jim was the only one who didn't hide inside the garage. Instead, he took up a spot on the top of it, but hidden just enough so as to not be seen from the road. They waited for the two groups to enter to the garage, and I improvised a conversation between Longsworth and the man on the other side of the deal, since we didn't create this particular interaction when we wrote this. The two groups did open fire on each other, again, just as we'd written up, and as we wrote it up, Longsworth rabbited when the gunfire began, but Jim moved off the roof and shot him before he could get too far away. Needless to say, his called shot to the head and 15 points of damage to said head was enough to basically missed good old Longsworth. With the show over, the group looted the bodies and came up with a decent number of weapons, a decent haul of caps, and two notes, both on the body of the guy that wasn't Longsworth. One note was to make sure Longsworth doesn't find out about the Ledoux facility, while the other note said, make sure you pick up the package at the best factory later. 
Now, while the Vest League intrigued them, they decided to head to Ledoux, and the reasoning from that comes just as much from player knowledge as character knowledge. Ledoux is very close to Clayton and would only take about 15 to 20 minutes to get to. So I wound up rewriting Ledoux a little bit. Instead of the building being basically a factory with a ton of protection around it, I changed it to an affluent neighborhood with dozens of walk-up brownstones. That means the group really had to search around to see if they could figure out where the facility would be and what it would look like. After a bit, it occurred to the group to have Jim scan for power sources. And when he did that, I pulled him aside and I told him he found a conduit running under the street that was way more than you'd need for a block's worth of brownstones. In fact, his character would know that the size of the conduit would only be used for one thing, a vault. They followed the conduit and found the brownstone it ran under. They checked the front and the back and ultimately decided to go in through the front door. They checked to see if it was locked, and it was, so they decided to engage in the Kool-Aid protocols to get in. Jim busted through the door to make entry, but also set off the frag mines that were in place. Jim took damage, as did Clayton, who'd been testing the door before Jim blew through it, so the group had to stop for just a moment and heal and repair themselves. With that accomplished, they moved through the house, found the stairwell, and made their way down to another door. This time they learned their lesson and they checked for traps. They found more frag mines and Braden disarmed them before they picked the lock and opened the door. This is where I had the encounter they should have had inside the bunker placed. Two synth coursers and two synth troopers. They shot first since their initiatives went before anyone's in the group. They missed and the combat began full-fledged. It only took two rounds and the group emerged victorious. They got the vault door open with their Pip-Boy, then made their way down to the room where the nuke was. When they heard the countdown, they hauled butt to get away from it, and I had it explode before they could get far enough away, and when they realized it wasn't what they thought it was, they went back into the room and heard the message from the woman. They listened, then checked the closet to find the body of Jackson Denman, though they were only able to identify it based on the descriptions they'd gotten from others. They left and decided to head back to their base for some long overdue rest. We wrapped the session there and the best job will be where we pick up next session, but that session won't be next week because of Archon, but we did all agree that's a pretty darn good reason to cancel a game session. So that's it for the recap and the show for this week. Next week, we find out what's really going on inside the Fox Theater and how it impacts our group. In the meanwhile, check out our other fine podcast, Role-Playing History. This week, we get in the Wayback Machine and deep dive the AC line of modules for D&D from the mid-1980s. It's a nostalgic trip down memory lane, and you're not going to want to miss it. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. Don't forget that next weekend is Archon 46 in Collinsville, Illinois. We're going to be there all weekend long doing live check-ins and a live episode of Role-Playing History, which we might just have audience participation for. So if you're even remotely interested in attending, check out the Archon website. That's A-R-C-H-O-N-S-T-L dot org. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. For a look at all of the fine products produced by Modifius, check out your local game shop or the Modifius Entertainment website. That's M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. 
The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. We are all over social media, so check the info box for this episode or check out our website, badgmproductions.net, to find out just where you can find us. Next week, we find out what's up with the Old Fox Theater and maybe what's going on with the Brotherhood of Steel. But that's next week. Until then, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.